Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre, and I would like to welcome you here tonight for another talk that goes with our wonderful exhibition, Freud, Rembrandt, Rembrandt Freud, sorry, curated by Brenda Ricks, who's here in the second row. So tonight we have Stephanie Dickey, and her talk is Rembrandt Prints and Portraiture. Stephanie Dickey got her PhD at New York University in 1994. She holds the Bader Chair in Northern Baroque Art at Queen's University. She's the author of numerous publications on portraiture and printmaking in the Dutch Golden Age, including the books Rembrandt Portraits on Print 2004 and Rembrandt Face to Face 2006. Stephanie Dickey. Thank you, Gillian, and welcome everyone. It's nice to see you here this evening. I was just in the exhibition again, and the galleries are full of people, which is really exciting to see. It's always, I always love to see prints being taken seriously, because museums are so full of paintings, and prints are something that don't get exhibited as often, perhaps, and they're always fascinating to look at. I'm also glad you have those magnifying glasses so you can look close. Uh, I also always love talking about portraits, because portraits are something that really are meaningful to people in ways that other art forms very seldom can be. From infancy, we are fascinated by the human face, most expressive and individual of physical features. The face guarantees identity and mirrors personality, temperament, and mood. It's because of this fascination that portraiture has a perennial appeal. It's an art form embraced across cultures and even among viewers who are, have little or no interest in aesthetics. Here's just a, a, a sort of collage of examples of portraits through the ages. I would also suggest that every, I would bet that every single person in this room is actually carrying a portrait of some kind. Now you didn't all walk in here toting big paintings and sculptures under your arms, but I bet you have a portrait on your person. Can anybody think of one that you might have? Driver's license, that's a good one. Passport. A passport photograph. Money, yes, we've got the queen on the money, right? And other, other heads of state are represented that way throughout the world. Kids' pictures, absolutely. Kids' pictures, grandkids' pictures, loved ones' pictures, would-be loved ones' pictures. We all carry portraits around. They serve an important documentary purpose in society. They represent us to the outside world for better or sometimes for worse. And they also help us to keep our loved ones in mind. In today's media-saturated world, it's hard to imagine how we could truly know and remember the people we love, admire, despise, respect, without having some way to know what they look like. Idealists might say that external appearance doesn't matter, but we all know that on some level that really isn't true. To take just one example, imagine being asked to vote for a head of state or to have confidence in his leadership without having any idea what he looks like. Before the era of widely available images, that's what most people were asked to do. Today, we're accustomed to encountering the likenesses of our leaders in a variety of media, some respectful and some not. And the way they look, talk, and act on camera plays a role, whether we admit it or not, in how we respond to them as role models and as leaders. 
and being from Kingston, I couldn't help putting Sir John A. in here. You can see, if you can't read it, he's saying, uh, Steve is saying, to be compared to John A. MacDonald unfairly taints my reputation. And John A. is replying, we are in agreement, Steve. You are definitely not John A. material. And of course, here you have something that happens very often in society today. Politicians make use of photographs to construct an image that they want people to see of them. And in here, of course, we have two very different kinds of images, the very official and dignified prime minister and the prime minister at home when he's relaxing. And there is probably a very small likelihood that that's actually his kitten or his fireplace. It's a setup to make you think that he's warm and fuzzy because that's what we like in our leaders today. That wasn't always the case. Or imagine being asked to marry someone without ever having seen them. This happened routinely to royal teenagers in early modern Europe, whose matches were arranged for dynastic reasons rather than for love. But the advent of portable portraits played a key role. Here we have King Henry IV of France, uh, who's being distracted on the battlefield by the gods Jupiter and Juno, who are presenting him with a portrait of Marie de Medici. This is another portrait of the same woman. And of course, he falls in love with her immediately and then agrees to marry her without ever having met her. Portraitists could take a little poetic license with these images, and they often did. Some princes ended up being rather disappointed when their princesses actually arrived. In this case, the two didn't actually even meet until after they were married. Henry was too busy fighting to show up for his own wedding, so a courtier stood in for him but they managed to get along well enough to produce an heir who became King Henry, King Louis XIII. And this painting on the right uh, is by an Italian artist, on the left is by an Italian artist. This one is by Peter Paul Rubens, a great contemporary of Rembrandt. As a result of its perennial appeal, the production of portraits, whether in painting, sculpture, or today most often photography, has always been a lucrative profession for artists. In medieval times, the visual celebration of the self was a perilous enterprise, verging on idolatrous pride, reserved only for individuals like saints and kings whose claim to deserve such an honor was beyond reproach. In the Renaissance, portraiture became more widespread throughout Europe and its tributaries, but it remained a privilege of the titled or socially distinguished elite. But by the 17th century, the era we now call the Baroque age, it was possible in many parts of Europe for any citizen with sufficient funds to be commemorated in a painted, sculpted, drawn, or printed portrait, tailored in size, medium, and price to suit a variety of purposes. In tonight's talk, I want to focus on the period when portraiture became uh, an important aspect of the visual culture of Europe, and especially its impact in the Netherlands in the 17th century, the home of the artist Rembrandt van Rijn, whose brilliant etchings are currently on display beside those of Lucien Freud in the galleries. Rembrandt made more self-portraits than any other artist of his time. He made them in uh, painting as well as in print, and here I show you just three examples that are in the medium of etching. Nowhere was the practice of portraiture more avidly adopted than in the urban centers of Holland, where a concentration of wealth, mercantile activity, and social diversity produced a varied market for works of art of all kinds. Canada has a special relationship with the Netherlands, which we also call Holland. 
Our soldiers helped to liberate the country at the end of World War II, and there are many families in Canada with Dutch roots. But the Dutch provided a role model for North American society long before that, in the 17th century, when every other country in Europe had a hereditary monarch, a king, like King Henry IV of France, who we've just seen, the Dutch rebelled from the Spanish Empire and set up their own government, which was led by citizens selected by their peers, not by hereditary nobility. This is a map that just shows you Rembrandt's country, the Netherlands. The Northern Netherlands is here. This is the region which today is Belgium, and here we are on the map of Europe. Rembrandt lived in Amsterdam, which is right there. He, sp he started out his life in Leiden, which is a smaller town, a little bit to the, to the west of it. This new country was actually an affiliated group of provinces, kind of like our own. So it has a number of names. We call it the Netherlands. Uh, it was called in those days either the Dutch Republic or the United Provinces. Often we refer to it as Holland, but Holland is only one of those United Provinces. It would be a bit like referring to the whole of Canada as Ontario, which I don't think the people in the West would like very much. But that's what we do when we call the Dutch Republic Holland. And the Dutch Republic is also not a republic anymore. Um, ironically, it is now, as of 1795, a, a constitutional monarchy. But that's a, different, that's a story for another time. Here you see, in fact, the royal palace in Amsterdam, which is on the Dom Square. Some of, have any of you been to Holland? So this is the sort of tourist central part of Amsterdam today. This is now a royal palace, but when it was built, it was the town hall for the commercial center of the Dutch Republic. And here you see uh, a painting from that era of, of another public building in Amsterdam, the Burst, the stock exchange. It was one of the first stock exchanges um, to set the stage for our modern capitalist enterprise. Uh, and, on, and here is one of the many merchants who became the leading citizens of this country. And you've seen his picture hanging in your galleries. This is Isak Massa. By the way, can anybody guess what his profession was from the portrait? Yes. Fur trader. Fur trader. Now, why do you think that? Well, he probably did trade in furs, but he also traded in something else, which is referenced in this painting, which is timber. Yes. So he was a merchant. He was uh, engaged in the import-export trade with the Baltic to the east of, Ems of Holland. So that would involve furs. It would also involve timber. In Dutch society of the 17th century, the middle class, not the upper crust, gained an increasingly important influence over cultural trends. And again, that's very much like today. In art, they developed a taste for subject matter that reflected their own daily lives. And here you see a couple of the genre paintings, which are such an important part of Dutch art of the 17th century. Family and home were very important to them, and they made that the subject of many of their paintings. And at the same time, they, of course, developed a taste for portraits of themselves. Here is Isaac Massa again, together with his wife. One of the things these Dutch burghers did differently from their noble predecessors was that they often married for love. Marriage became a partnership, not a dynastic arrangement. You can see that in this portrait, I think, of Massa with his wife, very affectionately seated together. 
It should be said that this kind of casualness only developed gradually. Their grandparents would never have allowed themselves to be shown in such an informal way. As Dutch burghers grew more comfortable with the trappings of prosperity and self-regard, their portraits grew more diverse in format and more lively in characterization. Individual portraits became common throughout Europe, but in the Dutch Republic, communal values also promoted a vogue for group portraits that commemorated not only family, but also civic virtue. A growing population of wealthy middle-class citizens lived in urban centers like Amsterdam, Utrecht, and Harlem. And like responsible citizens today, they engaged in community service. As government administrators, as directors of charitable organizations, as members of a volunteer civic guard. And that is what you see in Rembrandt's most famous painting, The Night Watch, painted in 1642, commemorating the civic guard company led by two Amsterdam merchants, Franz Koch, you can see him here, and Willem van Rottenburg, the lieutenant. By the time this painting was completed, life was fairly peaceful and prosperous for the citizens of Amsterdam. So when he shows them marching out to defend their city from attack, there really wasn't much to defend it from. But he did that to give a kind of dynamic energy to what could have been a boring row of heads to turn a group portrait into an action scene. The men of the Cloveniers company seem to be about to defend their city from an attack. But if you look more closely, you can see that there are at least two children in the crowd. This mysterious golden girl, and then here's a little boy who's running away from the parade, he's holding a musket, he's wearing a helmet that's way too big for him. This figure could also be a child because he's so short. He's wearing an outdated helmet. He's shooting off a rifle right in the middle of the crowd. There have been a variety of interpretations for these figures, but I think the best one that I know is um, that this isn't really a battle at all. It's more like a parade. It's a celebratory occasion, and the children are caught up in the excitement. Their presence serves to reinforce the idea that these are proud men who are defending a secure and powerful city. With the Night Watch, we've jumped right into the middle of Rembrandt's career. In some ways, it was his masterpiece, his most successful and controversial public commission. Rembrandt was born in 1606 in the university town of Leiden. He trained there as a history painter, a painter of narrative subjects rather than a portraitist. But at a certain point, when he was a young and up-and-coming artist, he chose to move to Amsterdam, kind of like a kid from the provinces here making it big in Toronto. And he did that by painting portraits. That was his foot in the door. As the economic capital of the Dutch Republic, Amsterdam offered a larger population of consumers with disposable capital than any place else. And of course, those consumers spent some of that capital on art. And one kind of art that every rising family wanted was portraiture. The bust format, like you see here on the right, was the least expensive. The more imposing half length would cost more. What do you suppose he does for a living? Now you can say it again. This guy is also a fur merchant. And this, this painting actually hung. This is Nicholas Rutz. His, his, this hung in the office of the family firm so that you could see not only the owner but also some of his wares being used for their intended purpose. 
These formats are fairly conventional, but Rembrandt owned, owed part of his success to the brilliance of his technique and to his sensitive observation of material detail. Here we can compare that portrait, a simple bust portrait of an elderly woman, Ossia Clayburg from 1634, with a similar portrait by Michiel van Mierefeldt, painted in 1640. In subtle ways, Mierefeldt's approach to details of physiognomy and costume is more stiff and formulaic than Rembrandt's. We might even say, if you can apply this word to a simple portrait, that it's less dramatic. Mirafeld was a professional portraitist. The total output of his studio is said to have numbered as many as 10,000 portraits. So it's not surprising that he often relies on convention. Rembrandt, in contrast, was a multi-talented artist who approached each canvas, no matter what the subject, as an aesthetic performance. Even in these simple bust portraits, without the possibility of suggesting physical movement, two characteristics set his approach apart. One is the attention to irregularities of form. Here, for instance, you can see the black satin of the shoulder just peeking through the rough, and how the rough just bends slightly under its own weight, whereas this one makes the poor woman look like her head is sitting on a dinner plate. A flush of color plays over the forehead, cheeks, and chin, and a hint of moisture accentuates the wrinkles around the eyes. I wonder if it's possible to get the lights here down a little more. Maybe we could see the images better that way. Because I've got my little light here. If we return to the full view, we can see that the modulation of tone in the background is also stronger in Rembrandt's painting. There's almost a kind of effect of light creating almost a halo effect behind the figure so that the, the, the body really stands forward in three dimensions. Both artists use a typical portraitist's trick, which is a single bead of paint on the end of the nose that just makes it pop out. If we look at it too closely, we start to think about the tangibility of the painted surface rather than the illusion of the figure's personal presence. But that's part of Rembrandt's plan. Like the double shadow, this detail reminds us that we're looking at a record of a real lived experience, the artist's encounter with his model. To borrow a modern term, we might call this the shock of recognition, an emotional response to an encounter with another living being that's more instinctive than anything you can achieve by means of verbal description. In more complex formats, like these three quarter length pendants, Rembrandt could indulge his history painter's eye for action. Here, the two figures almost look like they're jumping out of their chairs to greet us. And before the night watch, he painted another dynamic group portrait, the anatomy lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp. And here again, dramatic lighting and the rapt attention of the figures to what Dr. Tulp is doing serve to turn what could have been a rather dull image into an action scene. So with all of this background, we can now see how the night watch came to depict Captain Bonnencock's company so dramatically that one contemporary said that it made all other civic guard portraits look as flat as playing cards. Here you can see an example of one of those by the great painter Franz Hals. He painted this half of it. This part was completed by another artist and maybe in part for that reason. This assembly of figures looks kind of listless and disorganized compared to the night watch, which seems to present a coherent moment of action. Although some contemporaries found it a bit too unconventional, there's no truth to the rumor that it ruined Rembrandt's career. And some of you may have seen 
Peter Greenaway's movie, Night Watching, which is a rather peculiar interpretation of that whole story. Artful in its own way, but fictional. The Cloveneers hung this painting proudly in their guild hall, and even some travel accounts, uh, descriptions of Amsterdam aimed at luring tourists to the city pointed it out as a must-see attraction, so people really must have admired it. But the triumph of the Night Watch was coupled with tragedy. While Rembrandt was painting it, his beloved wife Saskia died, probably, probably as a result of complications from the birth of their son Titus. While she was alive, she had served as his model numerous times, and you can see some examples of that in the exhibition. Here we have a print in which Rembrandt depicts himself together with Saskia. Here she is portrayed as the goddess Flora, and this is a, a rather heart-rending drawing that he made of her lying in bed towards the end of her life. She, when she, he would sit by her bedside for hours, it seems, he made sketches of her. He also made sketches of things he could see out the window while he was sitting there. And you really sort of watch the progress of her life through his art. He cast her in a variety of roles in his prints and also in his paintings. Here, uh, she plays the role of St. Catherine, which you can tell by the wheel in the background. And here, probably an Old Testament character, Esther, or some biblical figure like that. And both of these can be seen in the exhibition. Later on, oh, oh and, the, and in two cases, he used, her, used his etching plate as a sketch pad in a way that no other artist was doing at that time, just kind of doodling faces on it and then producing a sort of model that could be used for other artists to learn to draw, but also a very kind of spontaneous record of his thought process. He starts here with the head of Saskia, and then he adds two other figures, which may or may, I think there are other women rather than her because this one looks quite a bit older. And this is another example of that kind of using the copper plate as a sketch pad. This one is in the exhibition. You see her face in the middle, and then here's a very old lady. Here's one who seems to be hold a holding a handkerchief to her lips, almost as if she's a sorrowful widow. Here you have a woman in a sun hat. It's almost like he's, he's thinking about the different stages of a woman's life and putting his beloved wife in the middle and then kind of clustering all these other women around her as if she really is the center of his thinking in this case. And you can see how some of these figures are more fully detailed than others. This one is very sketchy. Her face is more thoroughly defined. This is a very unusual way to treat a print in those days. Later on, in 1656, Rembrandt went bankrupt and lost his house and his impressive art collection. Through these difficult times, he continued to paint, draw, etch, and to mentor generations of younger artists. But as he grew older, the artist and his art became more somber and thoughtful. This is a brilliant example of his late work. You have to go to Kassel to see this painting and hike up a hill to a palatial um, country estate, which is now a museum, but it's worth the trip because it's one of the most remarkable paintings here. It's a family, again, he's thinking about family, he's thinking about parents and children and the love that they have for each other, but it's a biblical scene, Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph. It may be that this is a Dutch family posing in these roles. This is another kind of portrait that became popular at that time. People would cast themselves in roles that reflected 
their own lives or their beliefs or ideals of who they might want to be. Rembrandt also adopted historical dress for many of his self-portraits, although here he's not playing a specific role. In these four, five prints, we see some of the multiple aspects of his self-portraiture. Here he's kind of mugging for the camera. Here he's a very elegant gentleman. This is the one that you've seen on the advertising for this uh, lecture, and it's also in the gallery. Here he dresses himself up as a Renaissance figure in clothing that was about 100 years out of date for the time of this painting. Here he's in his everyday costume, but he's sitting there probably making an etching, but he's looking out as if very thoughtfully engaging the viewer. Is he looking at himself? Is he looking at us? He also looks very much like a scholar in his study, contemplating, writing, thinking. And he makes an analogy then between art and the intellectual endeavor of writing with this image. When he took up this art form of etching and more generally of printmaking, it was still a relatively new art form. It was less than 200 years old, but it was rapidly becoming popular. He worked in the medium of etching, whereas there are older media, woodcut and engraving, which had preceded it. And once etching was developed in the way that Rembrandt practiced it in the 17th century, it really hasn't changed very much right down to today. The methods that someone like Lucien Freud would use to make a print are really very similar to what Rembrandt was doing. The very first prints were book plates that were intended to take the place of manuscript illuminations. And they were very crude by comparison to what monks and other illustrators could do when they were producing handmade books. But the remarkable thing to think about is what a transformation it is when suddenly you don't have to make every book by hand. You can make a plate once and then reproduce it over and over and over again. Manuscripts were laborious, time-consuming, and also prone to error. I mean, imagine that monk writing the words over and over and over again. He's sitting in his study. He's writing, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Somebody comes in and distracts him. The next copy says, thou shalt commit adultery. Well, if you have it written in a printed block, you can print it a thousand times, and a thousand times it will be exactly the same. And the same thing goes for images. Images and words both begin to be printed together at about the same time. And they revolutionized the way images and words could work in society. It's a revolution that is actually similar to what's happened with us today with the internet. All of a sudden, you could have these images in many places all at the same time. And portraits played a role from the very beginning because people were fascinated by what celebrities, what powerful people looked like. Albrecht Dürer was the greatest printmaker prior to Rembrandt, I think. And here you see two examples of prints that he made. On the left, a woodcut from a series that illustrates the book of Revelation from the Bible. This is called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And on the right, a portrait in, in, in the medium of engraving of one of the leading theologians of the time, Erasmus of Rotterdam. And you can see him busily writing. You can also see an inscription in both Latin and Greek where Durer wants you to know that he has made this print, this portrait of Erasmus from life. Ad vivam effigiam delineata, 
made this image from life so that we have a certain security that we're looking at the way this man truly looked. In the exhibition, you can see a very nice display of how prints are made. So I probably don't need to tell you too much about that. But people do need to realize that the medium of printmaking is actually a number of different media, and there are different ways to go about it. The way that Rembrandt used was etching. And here you see one of the very first etching manuals uh, printed in France in the middle of the 17th century. Here you have people who are going through the various processes of this man is putting a, a, an etching through the press. The plate is lying there on the bed with ink already on it with a paper list on top and the roller press will press the paper down into the image, in, into the plate so that it soaks up the ink. Now what happens when we take the paper, we're going to put it on the plate and then we're going to take it off again. What's going to happen to the image? It's reversed, it's reversed. And that's one thing you always have to think about when you're looking at prints, that that printmaker had to think about everything backwards. It's one of the things that is remarkable that people are able to do this. Even the calligraphers who are writing those words have to write them backwards. And to do that was a tremendous feat of skill and also concentration. Etching is different from engraving in that the copper plate is covered with a waxy surface, a ground, and then the needle draws the design into that wax, not straight into the metal, which makes it easier to do. And painters like Rembrandt, anybody who could pick up a pen and draw on paper could pretty quickly learn how to make an etching. So it became a medium that a lot of painters chose to use as a way of augmenting their their art practice of, of having a stack of prints available to sell to people who might come to the studio to look at paintings. They were much cheaper than paintings, and so they could be sold to a much broader audience. The waxy surface is scratched by the needle, and then it's submit, submerged in an acid bath. And the acid does the work of biting into the plate. So you don't have to actually have the laborious carving into metal with your hands and that's what makes it easier to do. This is one of Rembrandt's copper plates that still exists, just to show you what one of these things looks like. Uh, it depicts Abraham and the three angels, a scene from the Old Testament. And um, there are actually about 80 of his plates still in existence. They continue to be printed right up until the early 20th century. And here's an example of one by Lucien Freud, and you can see that, it, it, again, the image has to be reversed in the printing. This is a nice quote from Freud, which you see in the display downstairs. An element of danger and mystery. You don't know how it's going to come out. When you imagine that the artist has to work on something that looks like this, imagining how it's going to come out, it is pretty difficult. It takes a lot of, of thinking. But the actual mechanical drawing is quite similar to drawing with a pen on paper. All kinds of visual images began to be printed, all kinds of information began to be circulated in this medium, and portraits were right there in the middle of it. Many of them reproduced designs by other artists, but Rembrandt and Durer were known for most of the time making their own designs for print, and that's what makes this an original print rather than a reproductive one. Rembrandt was also an avid collector of prints by his predecessor, so he probably owned this print of Erasmus 
by Durer and looked at it for inspiration when he made his own self-portraits, when he made portraits of others. This is a preacher, Cornelis Onslow, was a Mennonite preacher, and he was portrayed by Rembrandt several times, which gives us an opportunity to look at a variety of media and how they depict the same person. Rembrandt made two drawings of this man, as you can see, one seated behind his desk, the other full length, seated beside his desk. This is in pen and ink with some wash. This one is primarily red chalk. And this one has actually been traced with a stylus to transfer the design right onto the copper plate. So it became the direct model for the print. And you can see that the image, therefore, gets reversed. He is in the middle of addressing an audience of expounding on the Bible that's open in front of him. And you can see that in the painting that came out of this commission, which is more closely based on the other drawing, he's doing the same thing. But here, there's a listener for his speaker, and that listener is his wife. This painting was commissioned to hang in the parlor of an impressive new house that the Onslows had built in one of the fashionable canals of Amsterdam. Impressive and fashionable might not seem to fit what we know about Mennonite culture. But the Onslows belonged to a community of Mennonite merchants in Amsterdam who maintained a prosperous standard of living, but conducted themselves with judicious moderation. Here you can see that their clothing is plain black without any jewelry or embroidery, but it's made of the finest fur-trimmed silk. And Onslow, besides being a Mennonite preacher, was also a very successful cloth merchant. And some of the cloth that he had for sale has probably gone into that tablecloth. The open book is, of course, a Bible, and he gestures towards it as the source of his inspiration, while his wife listens with rapt attention. The way she clutches her handkerchief in her lap betrays the emotional intensity with which she, she responds to the message. As partners in Bible study, the two demonstrate not just the ideal partnership of a Mennonite marriage, but also the ideal practice of their faith in which the outer word spoken by the inspired preacher and the inner word absorbed in the heart of the believer are complementary principles. The painting and the print date from the same year. And here we have an opportunity to think about how these two media function differently. The painting is a double portrait, oil and canvas, figures are life-size, it's painted to hang in the family parlor. The print, on the other hand, is a small piece of paper, roughly one-tenth the size. If I showed it to you in proper proportion, you wouldn't be able to see the print at all. And yet, its impact is probably even greater because it's not one image, but hundreds of them. It can be in the hands of hundreds of people all at the same time. Who would want a portrait of Cornelis Onslow, Mennonite preacher. Preachers were celebrities in the 17th century. There wasn't a whole lot to do in those days compared to now. You couldn't kick back and watch TV. So what did people do? They went to sermons. Sermons could be as long as three hours and people would still sit there and listen or stand there and listen. Sometimes they couldn't even sit down. And those sermons were published. They became fodder for discussion and debate. And preachers were one of the kinds of citizen who were very frequently portrayed in the medium of etching or engraving because a lot of people would like to have an image of their pastor 
as a source of inspiration to put up on the wall at home or to keep in an album. Some people collected albums of portraits of all the great preachers of Europe, for example. And in this case, you can see three different impressions of this print from three different places. This one, somebody has simply written Onslow's name at the bottom, but this one is accompanied by a handwritten inscription in pen and ink, which is a poem in Dutch, a four-line poem by Joost van den Vondel, sometimes called the Dutch Shakespeare, a great poet and playwright of that time. And here he writes, Rembrandt, paint Cornelius's voice. His visible self is the least important part of him. The invisible can only be known through the ears. If you really want to see Onslow, you must hear him. People have interpreted this as a challenge, as a claim by this poet that only words can truly portray someone, that a visual image is not as good as words for that purpose. And yet I think Rembrandt has really taken up that challenge by depicting Onslow in the act of speaking so that we do almost hear his words when we look at this speaking likeness. This is a convention by then. There are lots of speaking likenesses in the 17th century, but Rembrandt does it with a certain naturalism that goes beyond what most people were able to achieve. He was always interested in depicting not just the visible outer aspect of people, but also the invisible qualities of their inner life, as if there's mental activity going on, not just physical appearance. And here you see another example. This is a portrait in which we don't have to rely on a handwritten inscription because there's a calligraphic inscription added. 90% of the portraits that you see in the 17th century in the medium of print have this kind of an inscription. Rembrandt's hardly ever. And that's an interesting fact, and one wonders why that is. He seems to have wanted his visual images to speak for themselves for the most part. And yet in this case, this is another, um, this is a person who meant a lot to him, the guardian of his wife, Saskia, who had actually passed away by the time he made this portrait. And yet you can see how vividly he brings the figure to life, making him lean right through this porthole, so-called. This sometimes is referred to as a porthole format. But it's an oval portrait, and uh, most artists would have securely placed the figure inside the frame, here, he jumps right out of the frame as if he's so excited by his own preaching that he just can't hold still. And this gives it a kind of vividness. That motif of the cast shadow is a device that, in fact, we've already seen. Rembrandt used it in the Night Watch, too, where the hand of the captain casts a shadow on the garment of his lieutenant so that you really get a sense of that hand projecting forward right into our own space. It's harder to do that in a small black and white plate, and yet somehow Rembrandt manages to do it. His etchings belong to the very upper end of a market that included a lot of commercial products. The trade in portraits of famous men and women included political leaders and other celebrities as well as preachers. Here on the left is Rembrandt's portrait of one of those commercial publishers, Clement de Jonge, and you can see this one in the exhibition. And here's an example of one of the portraits that this publisher had for sale in his shop in Amsterdam. This is one of the very few portrait prints depicting women, or relatively few, because women didn't often lead public lives in the 17th century. Princesses, queens in Amsterdam, sometimes prostitutes, 
were depicted this way, but most women didn't have the kind of celebrity or notoriety that lent itself to this format where lots and lots of people would want to have an image of that person. This is Anna Maria von Swermann, who was a poetess. She was known for her literary gifts, and that alone makes her very unusual in the 17th century. The inscription line tells us who the maker of the print is, who the maker of the original painting is that it derived from, and then Clement de Jonge, as the publisher, has his address there as well. And he would be the one who would be responsible for printing impressions of this and, and offering them for sale. Rembrandt, on the other hand, seems to have kept control of his own prints and sold them himself in his studio. Although with a portrait, sometimes you would give that plate to the person represented who could then control who got copies of the image. He could give them out only to his friends or circulate them more widely. Some of these commercial uh, prints become rather routine, and it's worthwhile sometimes just to look at things that aren't quite so artistically fabulous so that you understand why the fabulous ones really are different. This is a commercial image, an equestrian portrait depicting Oliver Cromwell here. But in an earlier life, this print depicted someone entirely different, the Earl of Arundel, who was a Catholic nobleman and therefore an arch enemy of Cromwell. But the plate traded hands from one publisher to another, and the identity of the person could be changed just by rubbing out the head and putting in somebody else. And this, by the way, is by Wenzel Haller, who's another great printmaker of the 17th century. And some of you may know that at the museum, or at the Rare Book Library at University of Toronto, they have right now a wonderful exhibition of prints by Haller. This one isn't in it, if I remember right, but there are other really interesting things. These are all portraits of well-known people we've been talking about, but for the most part, one of the interesting things about Rembrandt's portrait etchings is that a lot of his sitters were not famous people. They were people he knew well. He may have made these images as a kind of private commission, as a gesture of friendship, perhaps even not as a commercial endeavor. One of these men is Abraham Franzen, and you see this wonderful portrait in the exhibition. He's shown in his role as a collector of works on paper. He's sitting here studying a drawing or a print with light coming in through the window. You have other examples of things from his collection on the wall at Triptych. Here's a very interesting little Chinese sculpture. He was a man who was an apothecary by trade, and yet he was also an art collector, and Rembrandt depicts him in that capacity. Here you have two other portraits that you see in the exhibition, which are um, people he knew because they were fellow artists. The one on the left, Jan Asselin, was a landscape painter. And in this state of the print, you can see the landscape in the background. When you look at the one in the show, that's been rubbed away. Um, but that tells you something about his profession. Here, this man was a goldsmith, Jan Lutma. And you see an example of his work on the table beside him. The two prints in the medium of portraiture that are the most sought after by collectors of Rembrandt's work are these two. Jan Six on the left, Arno Tolinks on the right. Six was a poet and a silk merchant, and Tolinks was a physician. These are kind of polar opposites in terms of style. Here you can see Rembrandt has lavished detail on the interior of this room in which 
his sitter is depicted in a remarkably informal and intimate way. He's not even aware of us as viewers. He's totally absorbed in what he's doing, reading this book. And Tolinks, on the other hand, is looking at us with a rather shrewd expression. We've probably all seen that in our physicians who have about five minutes to listen to our complaint, and then the next person is coming in. He gives you the sense of, of a really kind of sharp but somewhat impatient intelligence. And you can see that there's a lot of white space in this image, room for a kind of airy circulation of atmosphere. And here, a field that could have carried an inscription but never did. So it's as if these prints were made for people who didn't need an inscription. They were people who already knew who that person was. So it's a, it's a circulation among a more intimate group of friends of the sitter and friends of the artist, most likely. Although today, of course, they're much more widely um, in collections. And even by the end of the 17th century, these works of art were owned by people who were not intimately connected, but that must have been the original purpose. You can see how very different these are, and this is typical of his approach to customizing his portrait so that each one is different according to the person depicted and also according to the medium. Here again, we have two portraits of the same person, Jan Six, one in etching, the other in painting, and they are completely different in how Rembrandt goes about conceiving what a portrait should be. There's an interval of seven years between them, um, in the etching, Six is immersed in his reading, but surrounded by attributes that testify to other activities, his collecting of art. You can see a painting on the wall. There's also a sword here, which suggests a kind of noble or aristocratic um, pretension. There's a walking stick and a hat on the back wall. He's just a country gentleman who's just come inside from outdoors in his country estate. Here he's probably inside preparing to go out. He's putting on his gloves. And you can see that in the painting, the focus is entirely on the figure, not extraneous details, but just the physical presence of the figure, who again looks at us in a very intense kind of thoughtful way. Rembrandt casts a shadow on the brow to, to increase that sense of thoughtfulness. And the painting of this portrait is an example of his late style, very brief, very um, remarkably economical. For example, each of the brocaded uh, uh, braids here is one single stroke of paint. This painting is still in the family collection of the Six family in Amsterdam. It's probably the greatest portrait by Rembrandt still in private hands. It was relatively radical in its own time because of the remarkable economy with which it's painted. People were much more likely to prefer something like this, which is very kind of artificial by comparison. And you can also see how different it is from Rembrandt's earlier style, where he really was painting with a much tighter and more precise handling of paint. That doesn't happen as much with his prints, and he stopped making prints when he was in his early 50s. It might even be that he was having problems with his eyesight that because these are such tiny details that you have to achieve in these plates, it might be that he just had to give up on that eventually. The motif of pulling on the glove 
gives us, a, again, a kind of feeling of action, of something happening, of a moment in time. But it's a, a kind of convention that existed already in the medium of paint. Um, here you see a 16th century portrait with the same thing going on. And Rembrandt was well aware of earlier traditions. We can see this also when we look at his prints. And we, knowing that he was a print collector, we can see that he adopted poses and ideas from earlier artists sometimes, but he really very much makes them his own. Here you can see that, that self-portrait as a gentleman that we were looking at before uh, is in some ways based on portraits like this from about 10 years earlier from a series called The Iconography by the great Flemish portraitist Anthony van Dyck. And you have an example, at least one example of his work here in the collection as well. Van Dyck's goal with that print series was to depict his fellow artists with the same respect and gentility accorded to their patrons. And young Rembrandt clearly embraced that opportunity with his self-portrait. In another case, he reproduced himself in reverse. Here in 1639, he made an etching in which he dresses and poses as a proud Renaissance courtier. And in 1640, he painted himself in a similar guise. This is the result of encounters with a number of actual works of Renaissance portraiture, which appeared on the market in Amsterdam. One of these was a famous portrait by Raphael, which you see here, and Rembrandt's drawing of it, which he probably made sitting in the auction room, watching this painting get sold for the tremendous sum of 3,500 guilders, which was way more than Rembrandt would ever have made for a portrait himself, the most he ever got paid. Well, for the Night Watch, he got paid quite a lot, but that's an enormous multi-figure scene. For a single figure, the most he ever made was 500 guilders. So he's watching this painting be knocked down for this huge price and thinking, I've got to paint like Raphael so that I can make a lot of money. So he's emulating this artist from the Renaissance. And that portrait went into a collection, which also included a, f a famous portrait by uh, Titian, this one. Rembrandt also saw paintings like this. This is our old friend Albrecht Dürer in a self-portrait. And he wrapped all these ideas up into his own self-representation as a Renaissance gentleman, making a claim that his art is kind of timeless, that it deserves to stand beside these great masters of the past. He had the luxury of seeing those works of art, those paintings firsthand, but a lot of other people might not have done. They had to rely on reproductive prints, and this is where printmaking is the foundation almost of the discipline of art history, among other things, because of course there were no photographs in those days, there were no beautifully illustrated books, there were no websites. How did people learn about works of art if they couldn't see them? They learned by looking at reproductive prints. And here are two prints of those very same paintings made by a German artist, Joachim von Sandrart, who was also in the auction room on that day and knew Rembrandt personally. So he chose to respond to this event by making prints that commemorate these portraits and have inscriptions which flatter the owner. And so he's using it for a totally different purpose rather than absorbing it into a self-image. He's using it for self-promotion of another kind by affiliating himself with the kinds of collectors and connoisseurs who would appreciate this art from the Renaissance. Rembrandt's own etchings have had their share of imitators and emulators. 
Here you can see, again, the difference between the difference, but also the similarity. Rembrandt makes this his own self-portrait, and yet I think he was thinking about this kind of very accomplished professional engraving when he made this etching, trying to outdo someone like this engraver with the brilliance of that embroidered sleeve. He's had his own share of imitators. As a great printmaker, he has provided a role model, not only for Lucien Freud, but for generations before that. This is a particularly unattractive example which I thought was fascinating just because it shows that this is an artist working in 1686 in the Netherlands, Nicholas van Til. Nobody knows anything about him, except that obviously he admired Rembrandt and wanted to cast himself in the same role. This just shows you that Rembrandt became a kind of pervasive role model, not only for other great artists, but also for lots of people who had access to his prints. Here, the 18th century printmaker Thomas Worlidge is depicting a prominent art patron, Sir Edward Astley, who has taken up the role of Jan Six. You can see the face has been, th this is an 18th century print very much modeled on Rembrandt's. And you can see that the collector therefore wants to, to present himself in the role of the great collector who was Rembrandt's patron. We can think of other great portraitists and uh, etchers such as Whistler, who is here depicted in a self-portrait, very sketchy and expressive, and here also a portrait of a man that he knew, which has probably something to do with Rembrandt's portrait of Clement de Jong. So there is this dialogue we can trace through generation after generation of artists, ultimately ending up with Lucien Freud. When we come to Freud, we have the sense more of a titanic encounter rather than emulation by a minor artist of of a master one. And the same is true for Whistler. If we had more time to look intensely at his etchings, you could see that he, he was as gifted in his own way as Rembrandt, almost, I guess. I wouldn't be willing to admit that anybody was quite as gifted as Rembrandt, but pretty close. But with Freud, it's actually easier to see the connection in their paintings because there's a kind of raw uh, intensity, especially to the way they depict their own faces, two old men who are not afraid to show every line and wrinkle that time has etched on those faces. Because Rembrandt stopped making prints at an earlier age, it's harder to compare because we don't have prints of him as an old man. It's also remarkable the way he depicted uh, the nude in his own time. He was, this was something that really created a lot of criticism. This is an etching by Rembrandt of a nude woman where he has clearly not followed any canon of beauty that goes back to Greek sculpture or um, that we would accept today as a standard of physical beauty that any, most women would try to emulate. And yet he is willing to depict this woman exactly as he found her. Some people in his own time found this quite shocking. Um, and yet I think what he's doing is making a claim for naturalism, for depicting the real world exactly as it is. And Freud does this too. He has created some criticism, some shock value out of his portraits of people who are not made to look beautiful or elegant in their, or, or to conform. The nude is probably the, the, the most well-established and ancient motif there is in the history of art. And yet we have very specific conventions about how it's supposed to look. Both of these artists are completely willing to go against those conventions. 
So in the case of these two artists, it's not really a case of imitation, but the deep intuitive response of one fiercely independent spirit to another. As a vehicle for communication across time and space, the portrait print is still doing its work here. Thank you very much. I am happy to take questions if anybody would like to ask anything. We can also look at any of these images again due to the wonders of PowerPoint. Yes. Oh, oh wait, I, I'm told we have to make use of these microphones. You were, you were talking about the reversal when yes. you do the plate. Uh, did Rembrandt not use tracing paper or vellum to draw it properly and then reverse it so you could get the image, which is a more modern way of doing it? No. For the most part, he drew his images directly onto the plate. He made preparatory sketches, but that example I showed you of the portrait of the minister where we have a very careful preparatory drawing is actually very rare in his work. And in fact, there's one example, which I didn't include because we were talking about portraits here, where he is drawing a nude model in the studio. And there are sketches by a number of his students of the same model from different points in the room. You can tell because he's facing in different directions. Rembrandt was sitting there drawing on his copper plate while his students were drawing on paper. So he made an etching at the same time they were making drawings. And he used that plate. He may have even carried them around with him and sketched outdoors in the landscape directly onto the plate. So he's really treating it like a sketch medium rather than in, in the more uh, laborious way that a professional engraver would go about it most of the time. Other questions? Yes. In your knowledge, or do you have knowledge of why he did prints? I mean, it wasn't for a financial gain. It might have been for financial gain on some level. Um, Albrecht Dürer was a great painter as well as a printmaker. We know him today primarily as a printmaker. He's, he's known to have said at a certain point, I should have stuck to printmaking. I would have made more money. It was something that artists could have available in the studio. You could have a stack of these impressions and you could sell them cheap. They're, they're cheap on an individual basis, but you could sell hundreds of them. So you could increase your market that way. Also, there are other uh, benefits for the artist. Once these images are in wide circulation, they become a form of advertising. So people learn about the artist. Even in Italy in the 17th century, there were people who knew about Rembrandt, and they knew it from his prints, not his paintings. So if you wanted to order a painting from the artist, you might do that because you had learned about him from prints. So they had that value as well. Yes? The last um, painting of the man putting his glove on. Yes. I was interested in the looser style of paintwork. Yes. Um, I have never seen that in a Rembrandt before, and I don't know that painting. Was that spreading throughout the artistic community then? That would be in the middle of the 1600s, right? Well, it was something that was more Rembrandt's own personal choice. It was not the prevailing style of the time. It was a, a style that he developed uh, as he grew older, partly maybe uh, inspired by Titian, who was a 16th century, early 16th century artist working in a similar 
kind of expressive manner. If you look at the work of artists as they age, if you look at Monet, if you look at Titian, if you look at any number of artists, as they grow older, the essentials are what they're after. The details just burn away and they get right down to the heart of what they're trying to say and they don't care what people criticize. And but I we've think grown to expect that of Monet's time. This, is, yes. this was quite a surprise to it me. It was. Well, actually, if you go into the galleries here and, and you look at the portrait, there's a portrait, beautiful portrait of a woman with a red garment and she's holding a little dog. Uh, that is Rembrandt's late style. It's, it, I don't have a good image of it, so I didn't bring it in here, but it's loose, it's expressive, and it's highly personal to him. He did train other artists to work in this manner as well. So it became something of a phenomenon, but it was a phenomenon that was contrary to what most people were expecting at that time. He was Here's sort of ahead of his time. He was, in many ways, and very independent. When he was painting that way, it was not what clients wanted, and he did it anyway. And that's one of the reasons that we often, he, he appeals to the modern idea of the artist as an independent creative spirit. We shouldn't really call him a bohemian in the way that the 19th century artists were, but he definitely was a character, somebody who was independent and wanted to do what he wanted to do, whether it was gonna make him a fortune or not. Um, were art artists um, at that time making etchings for use as illustration in books? And yes. Did Rembrandt do that? Yes, they did. They mostly made book, the first book illustrations were woodcut, and then engraving became more popular because you could do finer detail with it. And engraving was better for book illustrations than etching because etching is a little more fugitive. It doesn't hold up as well. You can't make as many impressions before the plate starts to wear out. So Rembrandt made a few book illustrations. They weren't very successful though, for a variety of reasons. One of which I think is that his etching technique is just too subtle to really come across in a, in a mass produced kind of format. So, but yeah, there were a lot of great books. If you go to the Holler exhibition, you'll see a number of 17th century illustrated books there, which are really quite remarkable. Just in terms of the technique of etching, I, yes. I gather that the um, the darker the tone, the closer together the lines. That's right. Is that the principal right. way it's, of achieving that? Yes, it's you can't have, if you think of, of a drop of water on a flat surface, if you stick your finger in the middle of it, it's gonna kind of spread out. And that's what happens to ink. You can't have, you can't just spread ink on the plate and expect it to, to print as a nice flat black. You have to have cross-hatched lines that will hold it evenly so that it produces an even tone. And one of the things that printmakers were constantly striving for was to achieve the tonal effect of painting. When they weren't trying to make the effect of a drawn sketch, they were trying to make the effect of a deeply shaded image. And that's the difference in Rembrandt. But I mean, he did both. If you look at the Jan Six or, or this one, the Abraham Franzen, there's a lot of deep tone there. And that's all achieved by hatching on top of hatching on top of hatching to create a really dense network of lines to hold the ink. Related to that then, I've never noted anything except the straight hatching as you described. But uh, so the mesotint and aquatint yes. had yet to be invented or yes, you just didn't right. use them? That's right, people often compare a Rembrandt print like this one with mezzotint, but mezzotint, mezzotint was invented right about this time, but it didn't become 
popular until the next generation after Rembrandt, probably in the 1660s is when it really took off. And then where you see most of it is in the 18th century. It became a common means of reproducing paintings because it is a way to achieve that sense of tone. But yeah, Rembrandt got some amazing dark, dark. He does, he does. He's, yeah. he's trying to achieve what the Mezzotint artists finally managed to do. And what they do is to just rough up the plate Rather than having to draw lines, they use a, a thing called a rocker, which puts little pits into the plate so that it holds the ink as a passage of tone. But that was something that was not available to him yet. Okay, well, thank you very much. I'd like to thank you so much. Uh, it's so interesting. I mean, what a subtle artist. I mean, you really see that when you see the comparisons. And I, I think that the Freud-Rembrandt exhibition works so well because of that sort of compare-contrast.